Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief. Charles is out this week, which is crazy. I can't even remember the last time that happened. I probably wasn't here. Anyway, <laughs> but I'm here joined by Jason Hellerman, who is a writer at No Film School. Say hey, hi. how's it going, George? Yeah. How's, yeah hello. Yeah. <laughs> Kath Tolentino, also a writer with No Film School and a co-host on the podcast. Hello. Todd Blankenship, writer at No Film School. What's up, everybody? And Joe Light, the managing editor at No Film School. Hi, everyone. So we're going to try and compensate for the lack of Charles with more people and more me. So we'll see how that goes. Up this week, we are covering Terminator and Thor director Alan Taylor and how he almost stopped directing because of fans. We're going to talk about something with Quentin Tarantino, which seems to be an endless supply of quality content, whatever he says or does or thinks. And we're going to cover the best apps for scanning 3D objects, which is something Todd wrote and I think is pretty cool. And last, we have a new segment we're debuting at the end, coming up now on the No Film School Podcast. All right, up first, Terminator and Thor director Alan Taylor almost left directing altogether because of fans. So we're all aware of this concept, reality of toxic fandom. It is... It manifests as online bullying. It's ugly. It's gross. It's all over the place. It's comment boards. It's social media. And it's something we've experienced a lot here at No Film School because it even happens among our own fans. I think in some ways, the internet just lets people unleash their inner worstness, whatever that is. It's kind of like people feel free to say and do whatever they want because there aren't really ramifications and it gets really ugly really fast. But it's fascinating to hear that a high-level filmmaker who's had tons of success almost feels like the whole thing's not worth it anymore. I mean, he's living the dream, right? And he's saying, I just cannot do this anymore because of the way fans talk on the internet. I'm kind of curious to know more about it. I want to actually kick it over to Jason because he wrote it and he's here, which often we talk about Jason articles and Jason is not here. So this I'm is here. A treat. I did it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jason, what, what the hell is up with these toxic fans, huh? It it's a certainly a phenomenon that feels new, but it, it's something you know you can trace back to obviously like the early days of the internet. People having a voice. Um, I think social media has obviously made that voice louder now. Look, it used to be the big stereotype in the early two thousands. Like you'd have the angry blogger. There's a whole Entourage episode that has this, this plot where like an angry blogger could take down a movie, could take down a director, blah blah. blah. That's sort of evolved now into these sort of online massive fan campaigns where people ask for different things. One thing's, you know, we saw the restore the Snyder cut stuff this year, you know, which worked, but at what cost? And here's Alan Taylor talking about um, how this happened earlier, right? In the earlier 2000s Terminator Genesis. And then again, with his work on Thor, where it was something where he says like, look, I didn't blame the fans for making me feel this way, but I also felt this way. Like I have to honor you know, my truth on this and, and deal with it. So I think these are really interesting issues. And it's something, you know, like in Taylor's comments, he says, like, look, I lost the will to make movies. I lost the will to live as a director. I'm not blaming any person for that, but the process was not good for me. So I came out of it having to rediscover the joy of filmmaking. Like, that's actually kind of scary when you think about it. It's uh, the very lifeblood of what he was doing. It's his whole career path. And what he's saying is dealing with these fans, dealing with the online vitriol, the you know, not even just the name calling, but like the calling for your job and saying you should never work again. You know, it absolutely makes a huge difference in your experience on the film, whether or not you think you made something that's good or bad. It, it can I, change things. I want to go around the horn here and have everybody weigh in, but I want to point out something that is so meta about this. So in this article, Jason wrote, which again, the headline is Terminator and Thor director Alan Taylor almost left directing thanks to toxic fans. The line very early on, the quotes he, did, he doesn't blame the fans. He talks about it. It's very nuanced. It explains all of this in the article. The first comment is about how we're wrong for art publishing this article because nowhere did Taylor blame the fans. So it's sort of like, I think it's a perfect example of where the internet and fan culture and messaging gets so convoluted and weird. It's like this ridiculous game of telephone 
do people even read or watch stuff or do they just spew frustration? Because that's what it feels like. So let's go around, though. I want to get everybody in on it. Yeah, I mean, in reading the article that you wrote, Jason, the thing that I kind of latched onto the most was the part where he kind of talked about his original vision for Thor. And, you know, what he described just sounded so much better than, than what we got to me. And I, that's a thing that to me, it's just like, it seems so rampant right now. I, I know it's always been a thing, but it just seems like so many directors aren't getting to make the, the movie that they want to make anymore. Like I, there was a meme making the rounds last week that was like, I think it was like independent director's career tragically cut short by Marvel contract or something like that. <laughs> and, I didn't see that one. That's amazing. And I, I think it's just like, it's just such a thing. Like, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that a lot of, you know, up and coming like independent directors get a, a really good shot, but there's a hard, I don't know, there's a hard aspect to, of it where I feel like a lot of times it kind of just means that that's, that's one voice that we don't really get to see unfiltered as much anymore. Like, you know, when I look at, you know, some good examples like Ryan Coogler and uh, who else? I mean, Patty Jenkins. Kate, Kate Shortland. I wouldn't put Patty. Jen- I mean, Kate Shortland did a great job with Black Widow. Mm. Just saying. I haven't watched it yet. Great movie. But, you know, it's like, I, I feel like more and more the, the conversation around like the, the director's version, like uh, uh, David Ayer was talking about his his version of Suicide Squad a lot, um, obviously leading up to the, the the Suicide Squad, and it sounds like it was a completely different movie, and and we'll we'll never get to watch that movie. But it's just like, oh well, maybe we will, and and they'll squeeze another dime or two out of that that uh that movie. But you know, it's just <laughs> it just definitely sounds like it seems like it's more of a thing than it has been in the past. Just Hollywood, uh, big studio notes, kind of squandering what could have been, and and then and then that that resulting thing is now tied to someone's name and that person's name is now dragged through the mud and you know they're you know they're probably making lots of money and that that's an aspect of it and all that sort of stuff but at the same time like i don't know if if i'm alan taylor and i've made i've gotten to make a terminator movie thor movie i worked on sopranos i did all the game a lot of game of thrones stuff like it would be a lot easier for me to be like yeah you know what i think i uh I think I did I did what I came to do and a lot of people didn't like it so maybe I'll just ride off into the sunset. George Lucas did that sort of sort of <laughs> big sort of there. <laughs> Kath, Joe, do you Yeah. Some? I mean, I think there's like two there's two villains that we're talking about here. There's the studio system and then there's like online the online community in general which is everyone. I think it's, you know, it's nice of him not to blame fans, but I think we do find that in our current society, we're up against some really like complex issues here with, you know, online, online harassment being as, you know, as widespread as it is and no single person to blame for that. Um, I think it's great that, that he's speaking up and saying this experience impacted my life in a really negative way and caused me to question my entire career. You know, we've seen like other public figures doing that lately, like Naomi Osaka, the tennis player. I think it's great that people are speaking up. Like, you know, this is actually extremely challenging when you're a public figure to face this kind of, this level of scrutiny um, and all eyes on you. And I hope that we, you know, get more people that are verbalizing that because like mental health struggle is real, you know. And I'm glad that it's a man that's saying this because I feel like women have been saying it for a long time. Um, especially in regards to like cyberbullying on Twitter and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but don't always get heard or don't always get taken seriously. So as as frustrating as it is that when men voice the same things that women are voicing, people are more inclined to listen. It's still good that he's speaking up and saying like, this is a very real, this is just a very real problem. I think it's also a combination of what everyone has been saying, where Todd is saying, you know, the studios are having to craft a specific vision that they want and they're doing that to appease the, appease the fans, but then the fans are still upset about things. Like I just saw a TikTok, I think last week where some, I don't remember the user of, unfortunately, but some guy was really upset about that, like two second cameo that the calendar man got in the suicide squad 
if you haven't seen it, it's literally like a second. And it's <laughs> Sean, it's Sean Gunn's cameo where he has just like writing on his forehead. I was wondering if that was who he was supposed to be. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And um, this guy in the TikTok was like, this made me physically ill. They should have brought in like Batman as a cameo to explain who this was. Like he was rewriting the entire movie because he was so upset that this one character didn't get the screen time that he thought he deserved. <laughs> and it's just like James Gunn probably thought he was just having a fun little moment inserting this character in the scene, but people get so upset about it. So I don't know. It's just characters or, or directors rather want to have a good time with these films and they find themselves stepping in all these holes that they didn't even know were there probably. So it's probably just really stressful. You definitely can't please everybody all of the time. I think that's like maybe the lesson to bring away from this. But I also think the overarching thing is maybe an amalgamation of everything we've all said here, which is that, you know, film, feature film as we know, it is the perfect marriage between art and commerce. But when you step into working for a studio that trades openly on the New York Stock Exchange, like Disney and Marvel, you have, you have uh, investors that you have to answer to. It's not just the studio but there's like a group of international investors that want to see their stock rise when their movie goes out. And that means making something that like base level isn't just um, appealing to fans, but makes the most amount of money when it debuts. And a lot of times that involves like, uh, for lack of a better word, neutering the story or changing things or cutting out dialogue or removing exposition while like that maybe could make the movie better or at least support some of the narrative threads you're trying to do in order to market that internationally so that it opens big in China so that you know you get uh, theaters across Europe carrying it so that it has the legs to get you closer to a billion dollars you have to remember a lot of these movies are 500 million dollar ish investments when you count budget prints ads you know global phenomenon so they have to crack 700 to 800 million dollars to even you know break a profit um, these are big bets and the bigger the bets these studios take the more control they went over how that bet will perform which means the more notes the more whatever a lot of these independent filmmakers who are coming from these backgrounds e even in tv you have less people to answer to in tv you just have the writers in the studio here you have the studio the investors uh you know like kevin feige who's you know pulling the strings behind the thing and and when you have a big title like like in Marvel or like a Terminator, at the end of the day, it's just about box office. How do we get people in? And that might require dumbing down the story or changing things or hearing arbitrary notes from people who are so worried about the back end and about the purse strings that they forget about the art part of what this all is. But that's probably an issue across modern Hollywood. And this is Taylor just saying like, hey, fans, get off my back, tweet it, these other people. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a sticky web, right? Like, you're right. The fact that these are that the company's making some of these movies and that that dictate most major releases. Going back to something Todd said, too, it's like, as a kid growing up in the 80s, I had this idea of like, oh, it'd be cool. Like, franchises were the thing. Like, you wished there were going to be endless Star Warses or Indiana Joneses or whatever. And there were really limits then. And filmmakers weren't as interested in, in actors and doing more and more and more of that stuff. And then in the 90s, there was like this indie film explosion that went into the aughts of where it was like, oh, no, you can like you can make movies like Magnolia. You can make a three hour movie just about people's like adult lives, and, like emotions. <laughs> and like it doesn't really need to go anywhere. And then now it's we're completely back in the other place. And it's kind of just the direction of where the business model is. And I sort of think like Alan Taylor is like straddled this strange, like, because he's worked in prestige TV, right? Which is the place where the most creative artistic expression is happening in terms of just like straight up drama for adults. But then that kind of, that, that slowly morphed into, well, what are the options for director like that on the feature stage at the largest level? And it's Thor, you know? And then you're dealing with a different kind of model because like, it's not a subscription model like HBO. It's a, you know, Disney has spending X amount of dollars needs to see X amount in box office. And so there's a whole other world of that and the fans matter in a different way and all of that. So, I mean, yeah, it's I mean, just, yeah. Like, on, like talking about the, the franchises of the nineties, you know, there, there's a, I don't remember. I think it was like maybe on one of the dark Knight bonus features or something like that. There was an, like an extended documentary just about the different Batman movies and, in in it, one of them, Joel Schumacher was talking about Batman and Robin, and 
he the way his like body language and like he he seemed like he was about to start weeping. He was just talking about it like and he said something like I was I was just trying to make something that I thought you guys would enjoy. I didn't mean to make all of you so upset. And wow. that was so that was so crushing to me cuz you know you think about it like yeah, these are these are extremely expensive things to do and to be a director of one of these films and I mean it's on that level even it's still a personal thing. Like it's it it's so tied to like it's it's months or years of your life and to to I, I don't know that has to be so profoundly painful you know while you're also sleeping on your giant pile of money or whatever but it's got to be painful to to have everyone just really openly be angry about something that you made and you poured a lot of yourself into and of course you tr- tried to do the right thing and I mean another another clip that I come back to all the time it's like whenever I'm feeling really overwhelmed or something I. There's this this YouTube video, I think it's also a behind the scenes featurette, but it's it's of um, Peter Jackson on the set of The Hobbit, and the whole thing's about how he had no idea what he was doing the whole time. He was making it up on the fly, and there's all this great foot. I mean, it's great. It's sad. Okay, it's very sad. But as a as someone who has experienced some of these feelings, it's kind of cathartic to see someone on that level. He's just sitting on the set, like so downtrodden and just like literally about to give up on everything, and. He's making, you know, the biggest movie of that year. And it's just, you know, it's it's kind of funny thinking about it in that context. I think this is actually it's it's almost a problem of like of like auteur theory being applied to what are essentially like major like business projects. And you have these directors that become the face or become the head of these movies when in reality behind the scenes, we know that there's hundreds of people that are making these decisions and it shouldn't all fall on the director. But for simplicity's sake, the public treats it as like one person that's kind of owning this. I mean, I know like in, I bring this up every episode, but I work for an ad agency and whenever we're doing a piece of branded content, there's a creative, there's a producer, and there's an executive producer, and we all have different roles. And you would never, if a project doesn't turn out well, you would never blame solely the creative or solely the director because, you know, in this context, everyone knows that everyone is, um, each of us has a different sort of piece that we're covering and a different piece of knowledge that we're bringing to it. And um, it's a shame, really, that directors can become the fall guy or the fall person when these projects fall apart because really it's like not their fault, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Moving on to our next topic, I don't have a clean segue except things that directors say and what's not their fault. <laughs> I, don't have, I, don't, I don't have the Charles touch yet, but maybe one day. You're doing great. Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> everything we write about Quentin Tarantino on No Film School People Like. Quentin Tarantino is a magnet for interest in the news. He goes on podcasts, not ours. We're waiting, Mr. Tarantino, whenever you're ready. But he goes on a lot of podcasts and he talks a lot and he provides all kinds of sound bites and they make their way through the internet. And this one was one of many we've written about. And it's kind of interesting to me because he just has some serious anger towards his mother still about a comment she made a long time ago regarding his writing career. She mocked his writing career when he was struggling in school. and. His response now is, yeah, that's why I've never given her a dime. I think the quote is, 
When I become a successful writer, you'll never see one penny from my success. There will be no house for you, no vacation for you, no Elvis Cadillac for mommy. You get nothing because you said that. So he's obviously, you know, holding a grudge, still pretty pissed. His mom actually came out and said, regarding my son, Quentin, I support him. I'm proud of him. I love him and his growing family. It gave me great joy to dance at his wedding and receive his news upon the birth of my grandson, Leo. So she took the high road for sure. It must be um, so hard to be Quentin's mom, by the way. <laughs> like. I mean, as long as we're getting quotes from her, I want to know about the foot thing. But seriously, like there's, there's, there, there's just so much about this that's kind of weird. He's a bit of a loose cannon, I guess, when he goes out in the media and he just, you know, says whatever he wants and he's Quentin Tarantino. But yeah, it's, it's weird because, you know, here's another thing with Quentin Tarantino. His dad is sort of an actor and I've heard him, he's tried to be an actor and he's tried to trade a little bit on Quentin's fame and he has a lot of hostility towards his father. Um, I'm not sure what the whole backstory is, but there have been quotes and interviews where he talks about him in a really disparaging way and his attempts to try and build something out of Quentin Tarantino's success. So I think he's got some issues with his folks. It's not entirely uncommon when people become famous that they, they deal with this with family members, but it's definitely weird. And I guess I just kind of want to open up for discussion the whole, why is it that whatever he does, like everybody's, like he's he's really the model for a, a director or a filmmaker becoming a brand unto themselves that forces marketing on its own. Like he he markets his movies on his own. He doesn't need the star almost, even though he gets them because Quentin Tarantino, like he's just, he is clicks and eyeballs and attention, you know? Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of, I think it's something that I mentioned last week that I I feel like the amount that we char- characterize directors and and you know it it reminds me sometimes of comic book people comic book heroes like it just reminds me of like like this to me the reason why this is interesting is that it it's sort of you can sort of project your your own life on a situation and and look at this look at the 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 origin story if you will of sort of what might have created an artist like quentin tarantino and i you know i to me it's like I don't know. There's a lot, a, a lot that uh, could, could you know, a lot of routes I could go in terms of a per- personal nature that I probably don't want to. But it's just like, I definitely think this is. It's just one of those things where like he could pretty much say anything about his personal life, and we would all, or, or it would get a lot of clicks because it's it's peeling back layers of that story. And and you know, there, I I don't know. It's that's really all I have to say about it. It's kind of one of those things where I'm like, in in a perfect world, they would sort that out amongst themselves, but. Here we are, where you know these sort of things are 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 completely you know they're they're news stories. It was one of our biggest articles last week, you know. So it's just like I don't know yeah. why are we fascinated by this? I, I really don't know. To me, it's it really just, feels like Trumpism. It feels like Trump saying I yeah. could walk out onto whatever he said Fifth Avenue and shoot someone in the face and still become president. Quentin Tarantino is this incredibly toxic person who makes toxic <laughs> movies that I yeah. want absolutely nothing to do with. <laughs> and still continues to like just be this incredibly popular figure and everyone's hanging on his everyone like, oh, what's he gonna do or say next? Can you believe he said that about his mom? It's like, well, <laughs> I can believe he said that about his mom. It solidifies like why I don't watch his movies. Yeah, I Except completely I did agree. like Reservoir Dogs, but anyway. It, it did, like when when I read that that headline, I was like, Well, yeah, yeah. That, you I know? Mean, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like a Quentin thing to say. <laughs> I remember hearing great. He, I've seen quotes though where he talks about how cool his mom was. I mean, he's so, he's got such a volume. He's got such a long history of quotes in the media about himself, his life, his career. But I remember the story about his mom being this big influence because she liked cool music and she took him to bars and stuff when he was young. And like he got like this, his whole concept of cool evolved from like hanging out with his mom and like. So I, I think it must be a nuanced relationship, at least. I mean, look, I, not not to like fully butt in, but I do think there is so much please, context please around do. this <laughs> around this quote, right? He said it on a podcast. He said it in a joking manner, and like the anecdote is like when I was seven and like doing bad in school, my mom said this to me, 
like you're not gonna be a writer. It wasn't like he was like 17, like he was seven years old and he thought like in his seven year old brain, I'm gonna do this, you're never gonna get these things. And then look, did he follow it up? Yeah, but he followed it up and said like, it, again, joking, like to this day, I haven't really given her anything. I helped her out with the IRS, but that's it. But like, I don't think that's a, uncommon. Like, look, he, I don't know what, how much money he's worth, but I, and I don't know how much money you're supposed to give your family in cash if you're worth that much. But I also <laughs> think like knowing that he even helped her out with the IRS to me seems like it was probably a, a big deal in, in general. And her quote pretty much says it all, which is like a very fancy way of being like, just like butt out of our family members. I think Tarantino is, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of like a cult of personality. Like we love, look, some of us love his movies and the, and the stories he tell. I think he's like one of our most creative and interesting minds. Like he has this whole, uh, look, what he does with pop culture and pastiche and, and all these other things. Like he was the really one of the first American filmmakers to do that, to acknowledge what he was doing, to kind of be this crazy artist. Headlines are headlines. People want clickbait. It's it's a noisy enough headline to be like, he hates his mom for people to click. Like I'm not, I'm never shocked at what people care about. I'm I'm mostly just interested in like, well, we have these comments now. Let's go back and look at the mother characters in his films and see where they are uh, going. You know, like, and that <laughs> yeah. I, you know, no, that's interesting. Like, there's a lot to unpack there. You know, there's, so. there's something about what you're saying that I just want to highlight though, which is that there is. We talked about it last week. More and more directors really have to trade on personality. And I tried to hint at it a little bit in the intro too. They have to build enough of a brand that they can be a lightning rod or a something. And he does like, maybe this is really just like him playing his role. I mean, performing on some level. I don't know. I think he lives his role. Look, he's like, he's not in a performative generation. I think that like you said, he comes out every five years with a new movie. He came out with a movie and a book. Those are huge landmark things that other directors aren't doing. He's doing podcasts. He's telling anecdotes. I think part of it is he does like vamping for the crowd. He definitely knows what he's doing. You know, he laughed through that interview. He laughed through that comment. Maybe he's serious and strictly serious about it. But I think like given his mom's retort, it does feel like one of those things that might be a little overblown. Um, maybe he's taken, maybe the context of what he gave it isn't something he would have loved to share with the world. But I also think he likes being a provocateur if you want, you know, any of his movies will tell you that. So it's definitely interesting seeing the way we view directors now and the way they have to capitalize on these things. But like, that's great PR. And I bet you he sold a ton more of his paperback books uh, because of it. So like, he, he's definitely getting the last laugh. And Tarantino, no, who among us has not like thought to ourselves, oh, you're, you're not supporting me. Parents or guardians or friends or whoever. Like, oh, my detractors, I'll show you one day. I think that's a very relatable sentiment, regardless of who's saying it. (laughs) So, like, Quentin Tarantino to have that thought at seven years of age, though. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty ridiculous. It's interesting that it's timed, like, so many of his things to a release. And, of course, he's always... Yeah, like every time he has like a sputter of all kinds of quotes that generate all kinds of new attention to his stuff. It's part of what he's good at. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So moving on, no segue to this one that I can think of is we did a story about the best apps for scanning 3D objects with your phone. Todd, you did this one and found it, and we talked about it a little bit. I think it's cool. I don't have any 3D modeling skills whatsoever. I don't know if anybody else here on the podcast has done any, but the idea, just like looking at the various 
videos and like reviewing this one and seeing it. I didn't know you could do this. <laughs> so I'm old and dumb, I guess. But like, this is crazy. Like I can like uh, take a person's a face of someone and then like animate them and do like, this just feels like such a leap forward to me for people who want to develop like the high level, like tech visual effects skills. This is pretty awesome to be able to do. I yeah. Think. I mean, you, you, you just said uh, you don't have any, uh, 3D modeling knowledge. The 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 thing now is you kind of, uh, you know, for the most part, you don't need to as much. So this is to me. Um, I'm obsessed with it. I've been obsessed with it for a year and a half or so now. But it's to me, it's it's really going to change everything, and it's going to only get better. And it's uh, with all the things happening in, in filmmaking right now in terms of vis- virtual production and just everything in visual effects with Unreal Engine and all that sort of stuff. It's it's now way better. It's becoming way better to create your digital assets like instead of modeling them yourself. It's better to just go ahead and let, why not just get the real thing? And so that's, it's it's a new thing that's kind of coming up more and more. There's a, a whole bunch of different ways to do it. And, and now with phones that have LiDAR sensors in them, um, which is basically like old 60s satellite tracking technology that has now been repurposed. It's, it's a light. Can you explain a little? Yeah, I, I feel like you're getting into it, but can you just tell us what, it, what that means? The fastest way I could explain it is it's kind of like what bats do with sonar. It's, it's, but it's, it's light-based. So it's, um, you know, it basically it's a system that lasers very quickly, I guess, bounce off of objects and it knows how long it took for that to happen. So it can create basically a depth map of what you're looking at with your phone. And so now, I mean, it started with the with the iPad Pro, I think. And then it's actually, if you, if you watch a lot of like behind the scenes stuff of visual effects, they've been doing it for forever. It's not a new thing to do it for visual effects, but it's been like, you know, like the, there's one person at ILM who knew how to do it. And that person has had a career his whole life because he knew how to do that. And now um, anyone who has an iPhone 12 Pro can do it anytime they want. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm over here living in a world where if my, um, you know, my, my breakfast bagel sandwich looks particularly tasty, I can now scan it and uh, make a cool render out of my breakfast bagel. <laughs> so it's, it's just kind of, you know, and there's that. And there's, there's also this whole thing kind of with photo scanning and things like that, where it, which is like a completely different process, but it's where you take, you just basically take video or stills walking around an object and then you throw those into some software and it can actually patch it together and create a textured 3D model out of whatever you t- took pictures of. So the reason this is all relevant is because now, let's say in Unreal Engine, you can create a scene out of objects that are in your set. So now if you're a visual effects supervisor, you're walking around with your cell phone scanning objects. And this way you can now recreate a one-to-one, two-scale even, version of whatever your set looked like. There, it's weird because there was actually... the uh, now, now there's a, a bunch using the LiDAR scanner, but there was actually one... I've been really confused. There was one that was... It had nothing to do with LiDAR sensors at all that was on iPhones. It was called... It was like Displayland app or something like that. And it that was just... like It took a point cloud. So every point was a photo and it would rebuild this 3D model out of just a bunch... Like it would take, you know, whatever... 2,000 photos and somehow patch it all together. And you could do that on any phone. And they, they, I th- I'm pretty sure they got bought or something. So I'm sure, I'm sure we're about to see that like take the world over by storm. But to me, the, the, the really interesting thing, I think, for all filmmakers about this is that we now can scan 3D objects with our phone and put them in a scene and they look realistic and they look great. And that is happening now. I, can't imagine what will be happening with that two to three years from now. Like I, I think the the I can envision a world where there is no more three D modeling, and you just you know like oh I need that car in my movie, but I I don't have the budget to rent it. I can go to a parking lot and find it and scan it with my phone real quick, and now I'll I'll comp it into my scene. So See, that's I, I, the part. Yeah, that's where the possibilities open up and seem so endless to me because I'm thinking about this and thinking about just like indie filmmaking five to 10 years ago where you might have to rent a cop car 
just to have yeah. it pull up and like exactly you and and like gets have someone get out. But now you could probably shoot around the person getting out and just model a cop car into yep. the background. Not to mention blow it up. Like even if it didn't look perfect, like you could find a way. And like we did this whole thing with with models that's going to be released soon on our channel. Or you did for no film school, <laughs> but like it has all that. Like like the idea that you could start building models and 3D and just photo them and put them into stuff or a person's face and like do all kinds of weird, like it yeah. is if you, pretty if you don't mind know any, blowing. Yeah. If you don't know anything about modeling and you want to have something, you can actually now make it with your hands essentially and scan it. And now you have it. And so you don't have to learn how to model. And, and I'm, I'm not particularly great at modeling. So I, it's been a huge, and if you, if you see me out in public, you know, Every, every once in a while, you'll catch me like awkwardly walking around something like with my phone, like intensely staring at it, what, you know, going in weird concentric circles and everyone's looking at me like, what the heck is that guy doing? Uh, I'm, I'm probably scanning something like, like a huge dork. Well, there's also another application for this. I know a filmmaker who's made his whole movie using LiDAR technology, an entire short film called, oh, no. called Forever that premiered at Sundance this year and actually is screening this Saturday night at nine o'clock as part of the Salute Your Shorts Film Festival, which I program for. So um, we selected that film and it's actually really incredible to see. I don't have any idea how this guy used this LiDAR technology, but every single scene is just made up of these like 3D renderings that he captured, you know, of people, of rooms, exteriors. Um, And the whole film is about AI and how it's sort of starting to control our lives in ways we may not even understand and what the implications of that are. It's like a really beautiful film. I'll have Um, to check that out. Yeah. So if you want to see LIDAR in action this Saturday at 9 p.m., Salute Your Shorts Film Festival, I think I have to look up what the name of the theater is called, but uh, it's there in Hollywood. One of the things that blows my mind about this, though, is what you can do as a filmmaker just as like a proof of concept. Because if you're saying like, okay, I want to get such and such gig or I want my reel to be a little bit better or I just want to show my visual like like style, like you can use tools like this to, you know, sketch out basically at a pretty high quality, like oh, exactly what you want. And then later, you know, if you're, get, if you're trying to get somebody to spend a lot of money, you can be like, here's what the vision is. And they can see it pretty nicely. Oh, well, I mean, one use case that I've dabbled in a little bit is just taking a 3D scan of a set and using it for pre-lights. So if you want to, you can just, you know, it, 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 the thing is, is like, it takes like 30 seconds. It's, it's like not time consuming at all. So if you walk into a location, you want to just like scan it and then you can like literally, you know, place some CG lights and kind of see how light might fall and that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of, a lot of really good uses for it. It's still, it's still like, I, I would say it's in mild infancy stage. It's, it's like reflective objects don't really work very well. It's, you know, you have to kind of be in like even light. So typically you only want to do it when it's cloudy, things like that. But I, I would definitely say that there's something to it where we could find ourselves, you know, a year from now, like just pulling out our phone and like grabbing a quick model for something. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's a huge new technology. And I think it's, oh, like I said, it's not new, but it's new to phones and it's new to the masses and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, I'm really excited about it. So which app should we download? Um, there's a couple of different ones. If you want, if you want to like, Real quick, have like a like a parlor trick type fun app. There's one called Bellis 3D Face App, I think is what it's called, and it's it's uh you can like in like 20 seconds scan like your whole head and neck and <laughs> and like move it around and and put like a little light in there, and it's really it's kind of funny. I think it's like they actually made it for like dental stuff, and and like they have like a mask fitting options if you want to see if how a mask looks on you or something i don't know what that you know i think we all know what masks look like at this point <laughs> yeah it's uh that one's fun but the uh there's a couple that are really pretty good there's one that's it's called polycam and there's one it's just called 3d scanner app those are kind of the two that most people use but polycam is is kind of my favorite but i i, I think uh, I actually just heard that the 3D scanner app is about to have an update, so we'll see what that's about. But yeah, those are the those are the kind of the three main ones. 
which is the easiest to use if you, like me, have no experience with any of this stuff? Polycam. Try Polycam. I will. Do it. <laughs> I insist. I'm, I'm actually thinking of doing it just seeing if I can weird people out like with the stuff. <laughs> Here, here's, here's what y'all do. Y'all go scan something, send me an OBJ model, and I'll do some weird render with it. <laughs> we'll, have, <laughs> we'll have the No Film School podcast render, and we'll all put it on Instagram and get, get 12 likes. A no film, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no film school render cartoon of our faces or something. Great. Yeah, I it. love it. All right. Coming up next, and there's no uh, easy way to segue. Kath, we have a new segment. We're going to debut audition. We're trying out. And it feels very much in line with a lot of the conversations we've had on the podcast in the last six months to a year about gigs, about the way we all get our careers started, like what kinds of things we're willing to do or we are asked to do early on. We've kind of jumped around this topic a lot. So we're going to do a new segment on it. Yeah. Good deal, bad deal. Good deal, bad deal, you guys. All right. So this is a a segment of the show where we're going to be doling out career advice in the gig economy. You know, so many of us, like like George just talked about, are working gigs getting offered jobs that might be terms that we're not super comfortable with. Or, you know, when you work in film, you're always going through different levels where sometimes you have to work for less pay than you would want. And so, or whatever. And so on this new segment that we're piloting, we can all weigh in on uh, job offer, current job, friend's job, whether we think it's a good deal or a bad deal. So... This week, I want to use the example of, I'm going to use the example of my, this person that I mentor. So this week, I want to use uh, the example of a mentee of mine who recently got a job to sound mix and sound design and possibly fully on a feature film. It's a feature documentary. It's his first job on a film set that isn't just like a student project. And pretty good opportunity, but he got offered $1,200 flat to do all of those things and was told that it'll probably be like uh, on and off over the next three to six months. And he won't be able to bill until the end of that period. So bearing this in mind, I bring all this to you guys to weigh in. Do you think this is a good deal, a bad deal? Why, why not? You know, yes, when you haven't worked on a film set before, sometimes you have to work for free or for little pay. But, you know, what are your guys' thoughts on this? I'll go last. <laughs> I talk a lot. Let's start with Joe. Um, I don't like it i don't think it sounds very good especially the i know that billing in our industry is kind of weird sometimes and invoicing is a nightmare and but the the time period the on and off again nature the inconsistency the amount of time that this person is going to have to wait to bill for work that is probably going to be much more or worth more than the rate that they're offering. Bad, 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 bad. <laughs> I can, also, I can though, go next. Oh, go ahead, go ahead Well, just also like I put this on the table too. Like when you're first starting out, sometimes you do work for free, right? Like I worked mm. for free on a short film set before I got any paid gigs, and so I put that out there just as an offering to just to sort of like counter your thoughts, Joe. Okay, mm-hmm. Jason. Uh, I think if it was a short film, I'd probably be a lot less, or also let's say this, I'd be a lot more forgiving, but even knowing nothing about the job of sound mixer, I just Googled the words, how much does a sound mixer make on a documentary? And immediately was given the answer between 34,000 and $120,000 a year by hourly, an average rate of $29 an hour. That's from backstage.com. It seems pretty legit. I have like, one rule when it comes to writing gigs, and, and I think it probably applies across the industry, which is like, I will never take a gig that will only pay you when they determine it's done. I, I think it's crazy because if you leave the 
payment in someone's hands and that someone is the one who actually is uh, determining whether or not you should be paid, they'll always push your payment further and further along. You'll always have to do more and more work just to get your base level. If they were offering maybe half up front and I, it was something I was passionate about, the documentary, maybe it's about like whatever, like world hunger or something like that, then maybe it's worth it to you. But uh, this seems like a really bad deal. And it also seems like, I don't know, but kind of shady. They're not one to give you any money until it's all over. Deferred payment means you won't be paid. Um, I just think it's a bad deal. Work for free on a student film. Go work for free on a bunch of shorts. Go make your passion project. Uh, but I wouldn't do this. I have a lot of thoughts on this. And I think I'm I'm always very self-critical on this subject because I definitely uh, tend to take on work that I probably shouldn't have. And it's... Um, you know, it's it's tough. It's really hard. What Jason said is 100% correct. Um, I have a rule that I either get paid on my terms or I do it for free. Because when you, if you say it's either full price or for free, because if you do it for free, then you can do it on your own terms. And you can say, I'll, I'll get to it when I can. Hey man, I, you know, I, I took a gig. I'm going to be a little bit, you know, delayed because, because you're doing it for free. But if you, even if it's $500, now now the person can tell you what they think. They can tell you their requests. They can say, um, yeah, it's going to, you know, I need you to do another round. But if you're doing it for free, you're like, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I'm doing you a favor. Like, like just, just like, I'm doing the best I can do. This is free. So that's... Really? that's I really that, like that. Yeah, that's, that's firm, really good. That's a firm rule that I have. It's, it's either full price or nothing. And, you know, I'll, I'll obviously never take a gig that you don't get something up front. That's not, that's not ever okay. And especially like, like Jason said, if, if, if it's on their terms when it's done, that, that is how you lead to a lot of very late nights that you are sitting there wondering what the heck you're doing with your life. Now, <laughs> on the other side, there is some complexity there because your friend doesn't have any previous experience. And it can be a really lonely feeling when you're like, you have this dream and no one's banging on your door and saying, hey, um, can you do this for me? Totally. And that to me, to me, that's where that's where that free thing comes in. And 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 the other thing too is you don't do things for free unless you believe in them, unless you have a personal connection to it that leads you to do that. So you you don't take the gig if it's, you know, some like if the movie seems like it's gonna be kind of whack, you don't wanna spend a month of your life working on it for you know beans. It's it doesn't make any sense. And and you know, also the old adage about the uh the, the gigs that you get paid the least for are always the ones that take the longest. That's just how it always works. Anytime I've ever been like, oh man, I actually got paid like what I thought that was worth. Those always end pretty nice and quick. Uh, it's always the ones where, you know, and, and that's just because it, it takes a certain type of client to, or project to decide that, to, to have weird terms about payment. You know, people who respect you and respect your time are going to also pay you what you're worth. And so, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, it's complex. And like I said, I have, it's it, like all these thoughts are very um, fresh for me because I do, you know, I'm, I'm not in the, the hottest market. And, and so it's, it's kind of hard at times to turn things down, especially when you're a freelancer, a full-time freelancer, because, you know, if you turn something down, they might not come back. And you, what, really what you have to reckon with is, do you want them to? And is, is the gig that they're offering you, is it something that you'd want to do again? Or are you just doing it because you feel like you're bored and you need to feel fulfillment? Well, if you if that's the case, then what I would recommend to your friend is like, just go sound design something dope for free that's undeniably good, and and then you're good. You know, then you 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 have something to your calling card. So yeah, that's my take on that. So Todd, oh, sorry, real quick before George jumps in, Todd, you would recommend that either this person say no or do all of it for free on his own terms. Well, is your friend doing okay? Like, I mean, because that's the thing is like, if, if, if they need the money, that's a different subject, totally. sort of. Like if it's, if it's really a but dire situation. But they're not going to give you the money till the end. I mean, if you need the money that's now, true. they're not even going to give it to you six months. <laughs> yeah, so that's you true. Need go, a moot, go, it's a moot point. Yeah. $1,200 six shop. months from yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yeah, I would say, I would say, Tell your friend to follow their heart. And if it feels like a project that they believe in, that I would just offer to do it for free. Like I, I, I you know, I actually just finished VFX for a friend's, uh, his first feature. And he kept talking to me about deferred payment. And I completely, I was just like, no, 
No, mm-hmm. I deferred, deferred isn't in my vocabulary. Either you pay me or, or it's going to be on my own terms. And mm. exactly what happened was I got really, really busy and I told him, hey, uh, I'm going to need like, I know this is ridiculous, but I'm going to need like three more months on this. So if you need somebody, if you, you, you know, I'm going to give you heads up because you might need to go find somebody else. And he was like, no, no, I, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. You know, it's just, a, it's just like an indie feature. It's not a big deal. And so, yeah, over the course of a four or five month period, I did this guy's, you know, it was like eight VFX shots. And, but they were the core of the whole movie and there was a lot of pressure on it. And I, you know, every single second of it was hard. You know, I spent a lot of late nights on it. And you don't want to do that if you think the movie's lame. You don't want to do that. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's all about whether or not you believe in the project. Cool. I love your guys' answer. I love this segment. I'm really into it so far. And I feel like there's not, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and talk because that's what I do, but I, <laughs> but I feel like I can actually not add that much. I'm just going to highlight the things I like that were said, but I'll just add real quick. I did the same thing, Todd. Like I was a big, I, I took, I did way too much free work when I was younger. To the point where it really soured me. That's my advice to your mentee or to anybody is like, this is a bad deal. I think we all agree, right? Did anybody disagree that it's a bad deal, basically? I think we all think it's a bad deal, but there are potentially ways to improve it. Yeah, yeah. because I think because I think what's been subtly hint what's been not so subtly hinted at, but but advised is like sometimes a bad deal is a good idea because sometimes there's a reason to do it. Like like as Todd said, maybe there's something it's just, you know, it's going to come out really good. As Jason said, maybe there's something you're just really passionate about, whatever it's about. So, I mean, free is a bad deal, let's be honest, but like it's, <laughs> but sometimes you do it for free. I personally did too much stuff for free. I worked very hard for free a lot to like what I thought was like earn, like cut my teeth and make my bones or whatever in the business. And it didn't really work out that way. People take advantage of that. So you have to be careful about when free makes sense and when it doesn't. And also a lot of people straight up cannot afford to work for free at all. And I was in a position at times where I could, which is unfair and that's a whole other story. So on some level, I do feel like it should never be okay, but hey, it is what it is. We live in an imperfect world and that's a whole other can of worms. I I do think though that if you're gonna, if you're going to take something for free, the thing I love that Todd said about the, uh, that I think we all like too, is that like the Joe chimed in on it was the like free or full basically as a policy. But if I can put a finer point on it, here's why. If you take something for free, you actually retain a little bit of power. It doesn't seem that way, but you do because, Hey, like I'm doing it for free. I'm going to walk away. and like, why like you don't you don't get to tell me what to do in a way right because i'm doing it for free which is yeah. great sorry george i was going to just say yeah that's exactly i think why i vibed with that so much is because if the person who's asking you to do this work is rude to you or demanding then you have the ability to just say you know what this isn't working for me cuz i have done that with like writing projects before where someone was just being like a little bit uh insane about things. And I just was like, you know what, your vision is, is this and mine is this, and I'm also not getting paid. So I'm just going to step back from this and, and feel fine about that. Like you're not tied up in anything otherwise. Yeah, no, I'm glad you interrupted me. Anybody go ahead and jump in. I, I just, I like the, I like the approach that it's like, I've produced things for free when I was like, I want to get better at producing, you get more credits. And I, I did too many of those where I did a lot of hard producing work, not soft producing work and like didn't get much out of it except, you know, I learned how to use EP budgeting and whatever. And I had stuff on my resume and it did help me get hired, but I could always be like, nah, I'm not taking the trash out. Like I'm working for free. <laughs> like, you know, totally. or like, you know, there's like you have limits, you have boundaries you're allowed to create when you do it for free. On the other hand, it's nice to get some money And on the other hand, in terms of your own self-worth and sense of like, I got paid to do it, so I have value. So even if you didn't get paid much, the hardest thing I think for anybody is knowing when, when a good, when a bad deal makes sense. And I think that in this, in your mentee's circumstance, the, the chance to do a whole feature, learn the process, maybe if, if, 
if they aren't getting their money till the end, they can negotiate some kind of other power where it's like, hey, I'm going to take other stuff during this and I'm excited to do it, but I'm you're not going to have my full... Like there may be ways to get a little power back. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I think also like it's worth... I think that we should factor the stuff like first onset experience and like first feature experience and like title and, you know, resume booster into whether it's a good deal or a bad deal. I think also I still agree with everyone that this is a bad deal, but I remember, like you've all said, I remember not having ever worked on set. I didn't care. Like I would, I totally would have worked for free just to have a job on set because those opportunities when you're just starting out come so infrequently, you know? Um, yeah, I was I was a producer on some shorts for free, but that basically means I was a PA. But I got the producer title and I got to do a little bit of extra stuff. And I don't know if in the end it was worth it, but it was shorts. It wasn't long-term engagement. And, you know, that there are, yeah, I think there's so many factors to consider. But Jason, also, I like the idea of just like quickly Google <laughs> what it should be. Like, what do people get paid? And like, what does the job consist of? And like, be armed with some knowledge there and go back into it and be like, hey, just so you know, this is like standard. So we're way below. So yeah, know. I think at the end of the day, it honestly goes back to what Kath said. If you have a mentor, reach out to that mentor. Say like, is this a raw deal? You don't have to just listen to our podcast. Ask people in the industry if it's a raw deal or not. I suspect that the budget is so low on this that they are trying to get, you know, get by. And, and I absolutely appreciate and understand that. But it goes back to like, if you believe in the mission and are willing to do it for free, like Todd said, I would, I would handle it that way. Otherwise, I just, I don't believe you will ever see that money. Uh, and that's going to just be my own experience. But um, frequently people will kick the can far enough down the road to make sure that they never have to pay you. So if you need the experience, be willing to do it for free. Otherwise, you know, let them know what you're worth and you're at least worth the minimum of what this person should get paid. Mm. So there you go. Yeah. $1,200 for the record is like typical sound mixer day rate. I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. That's one day. Yeah. They get a lot. Yeah. That's always the most, one of the more expensive onset line items, like below the line, like that, that it's a big job, but it's also a really important job and it's good to learn it and it's good to have reps for anything. So there's always, you know, there's always counterpoint. So George, can we encourage our listeners to submit their own good deal, bad deal? Like, can they write into an email address? Yeah, please write us at no at editor at nofilmschool.com where Joe usually will see it and send it to me. <laughs> and then I'll look mm-hmm. at it and then we'll talk about it here. So please, yes, yeah, send it to us. And Jason said, you don't have to listen to this podcast, but yes, you do have to listen to this podcast. And you'll get multiple people weighing in (laughs) on whether it's a good deal or bad deal instead of just one. And just in general, you have to. It's absolutely mandatory. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we have for this week on the No Film School podcast. On that note, thanks so much for listening. You know, you can check us out at Facebook on the Facebooks and the Twitters and follow us on Instagram and go subscribe to our YouTube channel. I promise there's some more cool stuff coming and it relates to some of the things we talked about today and Todd did it. And I'm subscribed to our newsletter, get our ebook that Jason wrote all about how to write a screenplay. I'm happy you're listening. You guys want to go around and throw out your, uh, you know, anything you want to plug? I do. I'm Kath Tolentino, filmmaker and film festival programmer at Salute Your Shorts Film Festival happening this weekend, August 20th to 22nd. And I figured out where it is. It's at the Public Assistance Theater. Did I get that right? Assistance League Theater. Sorry, not Public Assistance Theater. The Assistance League Theater in Hollywood. Come out. I will be there. All the filmmakers will be doing Q&As. Hope to see you. I'm Todd Blankenship. I'm a cinematographer and writer at No Film School. You can find me on Instagram and YouTube at Am I a Filmmaker? And uh, yeah, like like George said, you might see some some cool new videos popping up uh, that we did with some fun stuff pretty soon. Jason Hellerman. You can find me on Twitter at Jason Hellerman. As George said, download that free ebook uh, on how to write a screenplay during quarantine. But if you know, hopefully quarantine's over. Uh, you'll still be able to learn how to write a screenplay. So win-win for you. 
<laughs> Quarantine's coming back, man. I think it's. I think we're in for quarantine too. No, oh, Lord. sorry. Right, right, sorry. Before, right before sorry. Joe's intro. Come on, Dan. Yeah, Downer. Um, I'm Joe Light. I'm at Joe Lightly. Joe underscore Lightly at Twitter. Come talk horror movies, make because we're getting into spooky season. Give me a recommendation. Yeah, and I'll just throw out like all these people are actually fun follows on Twitter and Instagram. I I have learned to follow all of them, and there's some good there's some good content out there to be enjoyed that is not film school related, even though there's that too. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. 